Welcome to Murder Bucket. I'm your host, Hannah, and this is the podcast where I dive deep into murders, paranormal activity, abductions, kidnappings, and weird stuff. Let's see what I'm going to pull out of the bucket this week. Good evening, everyone, and welcome back to the Murder Bucket Podcast. We are on part two of a mini-series discussing Mark David Chapman, the man who killed John Lennon. If you're just listening for the first time, I would highly suggest going back to episode 50, listening to Mark David Chapman part one, and then listening to this one. We concluded part one's episode right before Mark David Chapman killed John Lennon. So that means we are going to talk about when he shot him, his arrest, his trial, life in prison, and so much more. But as always, let's do our week-slash-weekend recap. Now, obviously, you haven't heard from me in two weeks. And I kind of explained a little bit about why on social media... I'll explain on here super quick. Probably for the last like six months, I've been having some like gum pains like really far back in my mouth. Like every so often here and there, it would come, it would go. I wasn't really too concerned about it. But then about two weekends ago, my mouth just started to hurt nonstop. Ice packs, uh, heating pad, ibuprofen, Tylenol, Advil, nothing was working. I could not get the pain under control. So last Monday, not like yesterday, but last Monday, I had an emergency dentist appointment to figure out what was going on. Well, lo and behold, here I am, 31 years old, and I have a wisdom tooth that needs to come out. So at the dentist office, the receptionist made a phone call to the actual oral surgeon to see how quickly they could get me in to take out this wisdom tooth because obviously I'm in pain. I can't deal with it anymore. Something has to be done. Well, at first, the oral surgery office told the receptionist that their first available appointment wasn't until December 6th. And let me tell you, there is no way that I could have lasted almost a month. It just, it wasn't possible. I couldn't do it. Couldn't deal with being in pain constantly. So we went ahead and just made the appointment, hoping that me being put on the cancellation list would get a quicker appointment. So by the time I got back to my office, I had received, obviously, the online paperwork to fill out for the oral surgery's office. And I couldn't log into the portal. I couldn't access it. It wasn't working. So I ended up calling to try and figure out how to get into the system. And we finally got into it. I decided to just ask to make sure that I had actually been put on the cancellation list. And when I asked the person on the phone... And surprisingly, she had an appointment last Wednesday in an area that is like five minutes from my house. And I said, yes, let's do it. I need this out. 
It has to happen. So Wednesday, I got my wisdom tooth taken out. I was obviously in pain for a couple days. Obviously took medicine. Had to eat solid foods for about five days. And things are still slightly uncomfortable, but they're getting better. And now that I have bored you with my wisdom tooth story, let me just go ahead and roll right on into tonight's episode because I know that's exactly what you're waiting for. So, here goes nothing. Mark David Chapman, The Man Who Killed John Lennon. Part 2. Lennon and Yoko returned from their recording session at Record Plant Studios at around 10.50 p.m. It states on wikipedia.com that Lennon wanted to be home in time to tell his son goodnight before leaving again to go to the stage deli with Yoko. Instead of getting out in the more secure courtyard area of their apartment, they decided to exit their limo on 72nd Street. When they got out, they walked right past Mark, who was standing in the street. They then started walking toward their building's courtyard. Mark turned around and rapidly fired five hollow-point bullets from his thirty-eight revolver. Two of those bullets hit the left side of Lennon's back and traveled through the left side of his chest and his left lung. One exited his body and one lodged in his neck. Two of the bullets hit him in his left shoulder. The last bullet missed Lennon and struck a window of the Dakota apartments. As Lennon was bleeding profusely, he staggered up five steps to the security and reception area where he shouted, I'm shot, I'm shot. Yoko had ducked for cover when the shots were fired. She then rushed over to her husband when she realized that he had been hit. In a later interview, Mark is quoted saying, I stood there with the gun hanging limply down at my side. Jose Perdomo, the doorman, came over and he's crying and he's grabbing and he's shaking my arm and he shook the gun right out of my hand, which was a very brave thing to do to an armed person. And he kicked the gun across the pavement. The concierge worker, Jay Hastings, sprang into action and began to make a tourniquet. But after opening Lennon's shirt, he realized the severity of his injuries. He instead covered Lennon with his uniform jacket and removed his blood-covered glasses. Mark then removed his coat and hat to show that he was not carrying any other concealed weapons and stood on West 72nd Street, waiting for the police to arrive. According to an article, Jose Perdomo shouted at Mark from across the front lobby, Do you know what you just did? To which Mark simply replied, I just shot John Lennon. He then took his new copy of The Catcher in the Rye out of his pocket and began to read it quietly to himself. Officers Stephen Spiro and Peter Cullen were the first to arrive on scene. Mark was immediately put in handcuffs and sat in the back of their squad car. Officer Cullen states in an interview, He apologized to us for ruining our night. I turned around and said to him, You've got to be fucking kidding me. You're worried about our night? 
Do you know what you just did to your life? Officers Herb Fraunberger and Tony Palma were the next to arrive on scene. They immediately went to Lennon and found him lying face down on the floor of the reception area with blood pouring out of his mouth. Officers James Morin and Bill Gamble then arrived on scene to assist. When officers Morin, Gamble, and Fraunberger realized the extent of Lennon's injuries, they decided to transport him to the hospital in their squad car. He was driven to Roosevelt Hospital on West 59th Street. Officers Fraunberger and Palma drove Yoko Ono in their car. According to Officer Morin, he kept asking Lennon, Are you John Lennon? Do you know who you are? John then lost consciousness. They arrived at Roosevelt Hospital shortly before 11 p.m. Officer Morin got Lennon out of the back of the car and placed him on a gurney and shouted for a doctor. When he was brought in, Lennon was not breathing and had no pulse. John Lennon was pronounced dead at around 11.15 p.m., after several doctors and nurses failed to resuscitate him. Dr. Stephen Lynn made the official declaration that Lennon had in fact died. He is quoted in an article on allthingsinteresting.com saying, Extensive resuscitative efforts were made, but in spite of transfusions and many procedures, he could not be resuscitated. There was significant injury of the major vessels inside the chest, which caused a massive amount of blood loss, which probably resulted in his death. I'm certain that he was dead at the moment that the first shots hit his body. Lennon's body was then transported to the city morgue at 521st Avenue so an autopsy could be performed. On his death certificate, the cause of death was reported as hypovolemic shock caused by the loss of more than 80% of blood volume due to multiple through and through gunshot wounds to the left shoulder and left chest resulting in damage to the left lung, the left subclavian artery, and both the aorta and aorta arc. Yoko Ono requested that the hospital not report Lennon's death to the media until she could inform their five-year-old son. She didn't want him to learn of his father's death from a TV announcement. Even though the hospital abided by Yoko's request, it was nearly impossible to keep the information a secret, and it did get leaked. At the time, news producer Alan Wise of WABC-TV was waiting for treatment in the Roosevelt Hospital emergency room after he was injured in a motorcycle accident earlier that evening. Police officer wheeled Lennon's body into the same room as him and mentioned what happened. Of course, he called his station and relayed the information. ABC News President Rooney Arledge received the news during the last few seconds of a Monday night football game between the New England Patriots and the Miami Dolphins. Here is the clip from that evening when Howard Cosell announced the tragic news. And 
unspeakable tragedy confirmed to us by ABC News in New York City. John Lennon, outside of his apartment building on the west side of New York City, the most famous, perhaps, of all of the Beatles, shot twice in the back, rushed to Roosevelt Hospital, dead on arrival. CBS Nightly News reporter Walter Cronkite reported the news as well. Here is that clip. This is the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite. Good evening. The death of a man who sang and played the guitar overshadows the news from Poland, Iran, and Washington tonight. Former Beatle John Lennon, who was 40, was shot and killed last night outside his luxury apartment in New York. Many radio stations throughout the country switched to special programming that was devoted to John Lennon and the Beatles. New York rock station WNEW-FM 102.7 halted all programming and opened its lines to calls from listeners. Here is what they had to say. WNEWFM in New York. I have the extremely sad task of informing you that John Lennon died tonight. He was um, shot and uh, fatally wounded in front of his um, home at the Dakota. This report has now been confirmed by um, all of the other wire services, and this is a New York City police report. Sadly and ironically, Hours before Lennon was killed, a crew from RKO Radio came to his apartment to tape what would be his very last interview. During the conversation, John Lennon joked about getting older. In an article on allthatsinteresting.com, he is quoted during the interview saying, When we were kids, 30 was death, right? I'm 40 now, and I feel just... I feel better than before. I consider that my work won't be finished until I'm dead and buried, and I hope that's a long, long time. Paul McCartney was stopped by reporters outside an Oxford Street recording studio the following morning and was asked for his reaction. And here is that clip. I was very shocked, you know. Terrible news. When did you, how did you find out about it? I got a phone call this morning. From whom? Hey, uh, from a friend of mine. Are you planning to go I, before the funeral? Yeah, I don't know yet. Do you know, do you, have you discussed the, the death yeah. with any of the other readers? No. Uh, do, you, do you plan to? Probably, yeah. What were you recording today? Um, I was just listening to some stuff, you know, I just didn't want to sit at home. Why? Well, I didn't feel like it. What time did you hear the news? This morning sometime. Very early. He was criticized by many people for his reaction and later stated that he intended no disrespect. He stated that he was unable to articulate his feelings because of the shock and sadness. Let's pause here so we can listen to a word from tonight's sponsor. This week's episode is brought to you by Best Fiends. The fall season has been non-stop with corn mazes, pumpkin patches, and holiday shopping. With things hopefully slowing down, that means people will have more time to play games like Best Fiends. 
Best Fiends is the five-star rated puzzle game that's the perfect companion while waiting in line to get your holiday coffee or at the checkout at the grocery store. You can download it for free from the Apple App Store or Google Play, so you can take Best Fiends with you wherever you go. With over 7,000 levels, the fun never has to stop. You can collect more of your favorite cute characters. Every time you play, there's always something new to experience. So make the most of your fall downtime and spend some time with your favorite fiends. Download Best Fiends on the Apple App Store and Google Play for free today. Remember, that's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Let's continue with tonight's episode. On December 9th, Mark was arraigned on charges of second-degree murder. Law.cornell.edu defines second-degree murder as this. Murder that is not premeditated or murder that is caused by the offender's reckless conduct that displays an obvious lack of concern for human life. Leading up to his trial, Mark was interviewed by dozens of psychologists and psychiatrists. There were three for the prosecution, six for the defense, and several more on behalf of the court. They conducted the standard diagnostic procedures and did more than 200 hours of clinical interviews. All six defense experts concluded that Mark was psychotic. Five of those experts diagnosed him with paranoid schizophrenia, and one said that he had symptoms that were more consistent with manic depression. Before his trial began, Mark's court-appointed lawyer Herbert Alderberg withdrew from the case because he had received several threats of lynching. Police feared that Lennon's fans might either storm the Dakota or the Roosevelt Hospital, so they decided to transfer Mark to Rikers Island for his own personal safety. At his initial hearing in January of 1981, Mark's new lawyer, Jonathan Marks, instructed him to enter a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. His defense team was confident that he would be found not guilty and would be committed to a state mental hospital and receive treatment. In February of 1981, Mark sent a statement to the New York Times strongly urging people to read The Catcher in the Rye, stating that it was an extraordinary book that held many answers. In June of 1981, Mark told his lawyer that he wanted to drop the insanity defense and instead plead guilty. His lawyer, Jonathan Marks, tried to challenge his competence to even make the decision. In the pursuant hearing on June 22nd, Mark stated that God told him to plead guilty and that he promised not to change his plea or request an appeal, no matter what sentencing he received. Lawyer Marks told the court that he strongly opposed allowing Mark to change his plea and that Mark wouldn't listen to him. Judge Dennis Edwards refused any further mental health assessments, stating that Mark had made the guilty plea decision of his own free will, and declared him competent. 
Mark's sentencing hearing took place on August 24, 1981. There were two experts that presented evidence on Mark's behalf. Dorothy Lewis, who is a research psychiatrist, maintained that Mark's decision to change his plea to guilty did not appear to be responsible and then implied that the judge did not want to allow an independent competency assessment. The district attorney then argued that Mark committed the murder as an easy route to fame. The judge then asked Mark if he had anything to say. He stood up and read this passage from The Catcher in the Rye. I keep picturing all these little kids playing some game in this big field of rye and all. Thousands of little kids, and nobody's around. Nobody big, I mean, except me. And I'm standing on the edge of some crazy cliff. What I have to do, I have to catch everybody if they start to go over the cliff. I mean, if they're running and they don't look where they're going, I have to come out from somewhere and catch them. That's all I do all day. I just be the catcher in the rye and all. Once he was finished speaking, Judge Edwards sentenced Mark to 20 years to life in prison. He also ordered Mark to undergo psychiatric treatment during his incarceration. Mark was sent to Attica State Prison located outside Buffalo, New York. He was separated from the other prisoners out of concern for his safety. In February of 1982, he chose to fast for 26 days, which made the New York State Supreme Court authorize the state to force-feed him. Martin Van Holden, Central New York Psychiatric Center director, stated that he refused to eat with the other inmates but did agree to take liquid nutrients. While at Attica, Mark worked as a legal clerk and a kitchen helper. Because he was sentenced to 20 years to life, he was denied from participating in the Cepheus Attica workshops that help inmates adjust to life outside prison. As another concern for his safety, he was prohibited from attending the violence and anger management classes. Mark was also in the family reunion program which allowed one conjugal visit a year with his wife. This allowed him to spend up to 48 hours alone with his wife in a specially built prison home. In 2000, Yoko Ono sent a letter to the parole board prior to Mark's first hearing opposing his release. In her letter, she refers to him as the subject. Her letter was eventually released to the media by her press spokesman, Elliot Mintz. It states that John Lennon brought light and hope to the world and would have gladly changed his position with the subject and lived the life of protection that the subject has now. She goes on to state, Myself and John's two sons would not feel safe for the rest of our lives. People who are in positions of high visibility An outspokenness such as John would also feel unsafe. Many will feel betrayed. Anger and fear would rise again such that people in the outside world who are strongly distressed about what he has done 
would feel that it is unfair that the subject is rewarded with a normal life while John lost his. Violence begates violence. State Senator Michael Nozilio also wrote to the parole board stating that it is the responsibility of the New York State Parole Board to ensure that public safety is protected from the release of dangerous criminals like Mark David Chapman. During his first parole hearing, which lasted 50 minutes, Mark said that he was not a danger to society and had overcome the psychological problems. He is quoted in an article on Murderpedia.com saying, I believe once you take a person's life, there's no way you can make up for that. Period. The parole board stated that your most vicious and violent act was apparently fueled by your need to be acknowledged. During your parole hearing, this panel noted your continued interest in maintaining your notoriety. He was then denied parole for the first time. Under the New York state law, Mark is required to have a parole hearing every two years. In 2002, the board stated again that releasing him would depreciate the seriousness of his crime. He was denied. In 2004, the board stated that their decision to deny his parole yet again was based on the extreme malicious intent that he exhibited during the instant offense where he fired a handgun multiple times, striking his target. They also mentioned that he subjected Yoko Ono to monumental suffering by her witnessing the crime. In 2006, the parole hearing lasted only 16 minutes and concluded with the board stating, that they remain concerned about the bizarre nature of this premeditated and violent crime. He was denied again. On the 26th anniversary of John Lennon's death in December of 2006, Yoko Ono published a one-page advertisement in several newspapers saying that while December 8th should be a day of forgiveness, she has not forgiven Mark and wasn't sure if she was ready yet. In 2012, Mark was transferred to Windy Correctional Facility near Buffalo, New York. In an article on nypost.com, a spokesman for the state prison system says that they do not disclose why inmates are transferred. During his parole hearing in 2018, the board stated this, Mark admittedly carefully planned and executed the murder of a world-famous person for no reason other than to gain notoriety. While no one person's life is any more valuable than another's, the fact that you chose someone who was not only a world-renowned person and beloved by millions, regardless of pain and suffering you would cause to his family, friends, and so many others, you demonstrated a callous disregard for the sanctity of human life and the pain and suffering of others. This fact remains a concern to this panel. He was denied again, making this denial number 10. In his most recent parole hearing, which was held in 2020, 
he was denied for an 11th time. Mark's next hearing is not scheduled until August of 2022. John Lennon's murder and his killer Mark David Chapman are mentioned in several popular cultural references. Here are some, but not all. Marilyn Manson's album, Holy Wood, as well as being partially inspired by Lennon's murder, makes various references to Lennon, particularly in the song Lamb of God. Elton John's 1982 song, Empty Garden, from the album Jump Up, refers to Mark David Chapman as the insect who damaged so much grain. Former Beatle George Harrison referred to Chapman in his song All Those Years Ago as the devil's best friend, someone who offended all. Pink Floyd's guitarist David Gilmour wrote the song Murder about Lennon's death, which appears on his 1984 solo album About Face. Warrant wrote a song on their 1992 album Dog Eat Dog about Mark Chapman called Andy Warhol Was Right. The Southern California punk band Bad Religion makes reference to Chapman in the song Don't Pray On Me on their album Recipe for Hate. Ozzy Osbourne wrote a song entitled Shot in the Dark, which is written from Chapman's point of view. Paul Simon's late great Johnny Ace on the Hearts and Bones album was written in response to Lennon's murder. Danish rock band Dizzy Ms. Lizzie published a song about John Lennon's death entitled 11.07 p.m. American rock group Styx recorded Killing the Thing That You Love, which contains the chorus, As you look in the mirror at what you've become, killing the thing that you love, like Lennon's assassin, Lennon's assassin. A scene in the 1997 film Private Parts features an irate Howard Stern insisting that Chapman be killed if he were ever released. Irish band The Cranberries recorded a song, I Just Shot John Lennon. Irish rock band U2, during the spring leg of the 2001 Elevation Tour, regularly made reference to Chapman in the spoken section at the end of the song, Bullet in the Sky, during an anti-gun tirade from Bono. The line was normally a variation on, I can make a wound that won't heal, 38 millimeters like the police, I'm at the door with John and Yoko, screaming love and peace, an old tune soon to be deceased. John, we don't need your help. America's at war with itself. More body bags than Vietnam. What's my name? Mark Chapman. During WWE's WrestleMania 22, a match took place between women's champion Trish Stratus and Mickey James, who, according to the storyline, was Trish's biggest fan. Color commentator Jerry the King Lawler analogized Chapman's admiration for Lennon in a similar way to how James idolized Stratus, claiming to be her best friend before attacking her. Paul McCartney mentions Chapman in a poem called Jerks of All Jerks. 
Queen singer Freddie Mercury wrote a song for John called Life is Real. There are also two biographical films centered around Mark David Chapman and John Lennon's murder. They are the 2006 film The Killing of John Lennon, directed by Andrew Pittington, and the 2007 film Chapter 27, directed by J.P. Schaefer. And that concludes the two-part series of Mark David Chapman, The Man Who Killed John Lennon. Thank you for listening to tonight's episode. Before you go, please take a moment to check out this promo from my friends at Beard Owl Podcast. Hi, I'm Lauren. And I'm John. And we host the Beard Owl Podcast, the podcast where we talk about two of the greatest things in the world, beer and Weird Owl. And a bunch of other stuff. That's right. Do you like nostalgia? Do you like sibling banter? Do you like beer? Do you like Weird Owl? Are you human? If you answered yes to any of those questions, give us a listen. Become one of our loyal commenters. Thanks for sticking around to the end. I hope you have enjoyed tonight's episode. Be sure to check us out on Instagram at MurdBucket, Twitter at The Murder Bucket, and Facebook at Bucket Murd. Check out weekly posts regarding new episodes and chime in on the weekend slash week recaps. I would love to get to know you better. Have a great day.